Hello, my name is Lily Cyphers and I'm Vice President Operations of the GMCA. Welcome to the GMCA podcast. Today, I am excited to share my conversations with Justin Dionarin and Najib Jutt about knowledge, skills, and attitudes in consulting. Justin specializes in the application of personality, emotional intelligence, and data-driven decision-making to areas such as leadership, corporate culture, and selection. He has worked with organizations varying in size from local to multinational and has published articles about leadership, corporate culture, innovation, entrepreneurship, and emotional intelligence for sources such as Inc.com, Canadian HR Director, and HR.com. Najib is a political strategist and commentator. He focuses on areas of concern for people of color and the four benefits sector, organizations that strive for the greater good. To kick off today's conversation, we are going to hear from Justin on the knowledge piece of consulting. So knowledge for uh, a consultant is always going to vary by industry. Um, What you're going to need to know is going to be specialized based on whatever area you're in. So the knowledge that an engineering consultant will need will vary from a psychology consultant, will vary from an accounting consultant, a business consultant, et cetera. Um, and, And this is great because in grads, studies you tend to specialize quite heavily um, not only in your area but also usually into a subfield of that area so you're, you're kind of on board with that and that really helps you get that base to get started and because you specialized into a niche you know that niche really well so knowledge is important because there's this conceptual hurdle that you're gonna have to overcome coming out of grad school a lot of employers especially are gonna say well really is that relevant work experience. It's not a number of years uh, in the workplace. So is it really equivalent? So whether you're going for a job at a consulting firm or you're trying to pitch to a client for your own gig, you're going to have to convince people that you're bringing something new to the table or you can solve problems better than everyone else. You can do something that's better than the status quo. You can do something unique that's different. So in order to really sell that, you're going to have to sell that expertise. You're going to have to sell that knowledge. You're going to have to sell that something different that you have that you know that no one else does. So then after you provide that convincing argument, that sales pitch, you're also going to have to be able to execute. And that's the hardest part about consulting. People tend to be really good at sales or really good at executing. So if you can't execute, if you can't walk the walk, everything falls apart very quickly. And that's where I sometimes see contracts fall or gigs fall apart. They make promises that they can't keep. If you want more of a practical way of how to, what knowledge do I need to have in order to pitch something, in order to get that foot in the door to insist that I have this knowledge, let's take an interview for an example. Before you go in for an interview, take a look, do some research on that company. So your job as a consultant is to find out what the problems are at the company, whether or not the company realizes it or acknowledges it. So they may never know what their problems are. That's your your job. They may think it's something else, but your job is to find out exactly what it is and to solve it. So 
look at online reviews like Glassdoor. Um, find out why people are leaving the company. So if you're a computer engineer, is it, do you see a lot of complaints about technology being archaic? Is there a way that as a computer science major or an engineer that you can help improve that issue? If Are they hemorrhaging money? And you're an MBA student. Well, maybe they need a little bit of of uh, tightening on the on the business side. So maybe your ex expertise in the accounting side or the finance side of an MBA might help. And maybe there's just a lot of unhappy people and a lot of people unhappy with the executives. So psychology folks, that's where organizational psychology can really find a good niche. Overall, the knowledge that you're going to need to be able to do, you need to identify that issue, figure out a unique solution, and then execute. These are the basic three things in terms of knowledge that you're going to need going into a consulting role. I really loved that suggestion that you made for people who are in interviews, right? To kind of act as a consultant already, figure out a problem, and then pitch to people how you have value that you can provide to that. So, how do you do that in an interview? When I'm in interviews, I, if I see this issue, if I see this problem, I tend to be very upfront about it. I tend to be honest. Hey, I did some research on the company. I'm seeing this pattern. I'm seeing this challenge that you have. You've mentioned this. This seems to be a problem that you have in the company. I mean, during an interview, remember, it's not just one-sided. You're, you can ask them questions too, and I dig and I prod a little bit to see what are their issues, what, what are the things that I'd be coming in and solving. So from there, I use a combination of what I've been able to research on the company and then uh, add in what I've heard from, from them, what they think their problems are, what they think their challenges are. Um, so I don't use words like problems when I'm in the interview. I use things like challenges. Um, so there, are, there are ways to be direct about it, but to soften the blow a little bit. Um, and I think if you're upfront and honest about saying, hey, I did some research into your company before coming to this interview, here's some of the things that I found. People, even if you're direct about it, people are not going to be um, offended because they're going to be just more receptive because you've done research. <laughs> Most of the people coming in are not doing research. Let's say that this works, right? You get the job. Um, what are skills that consultants are going to have in common that they're going to need? Because obviously there's very extreme kind of differences based on your area of expertise. So what would you say are these main skills that you're going to be needing across any type of consulting gig? It's just a matter of that EQ side of things. There's common skills that are useful in every industry. And things it's things like organization, communication, teamwork, the soft skills. The hard skills are always going to be your resume-based um, criteria. Can I actually do this job? The rest of it that that relationship building, that consulting side of things is going to be your soft skills. So 
it is a little bit, again, of that perception game. If you have a good EQ, you're a little bit more than the average consultant at that point. The average consultant maybe has an average EQ. So if you're better developed in terms of those soft skills, you look better, you have something that you can offer above and beyond your competition. The other thing is problem solving. Um, as I mentioned when we were talking about knowledge, you, you have to be able to identify that issue. You have to be able to identify a solution to that issue. You have to be able to solve it. And the problems that you're going to be coming across, especially as a consultant, you're not always going to be familiar with. It's, it, it's really nice to come across problems that we can take previous solutions and stitch apart and stitch some take different pieces of different solutions and stitch them together to solve a new problem but not all problems are going to be that way maybe it's because it's the current situation brings up just those that last idea of resilience and adaptability i will tell you from experience a lot of consultants are hurting right now um, I work, I know a lot of consultants. I work with a lot of consultants. Consultants are some of my clients. Um, they are hurting. They just don't entirely know what to do. Some of them right now. And it's adaptability. If, if they can figure out how to, some of the more successful consultants right now are figuring out how to move into a different branch, move into a different offering get put together something that people need right now and they're the ones that are going to survive they're the ones that are going to adapt um if if the ones who are not it's a little harsh but they're becoming obsolete um it, it's really hard right now when there is a limited market if you're not adapting you are dying consultants who are able to adapt is there kind of a best approach to kind of understand your field and where it's going and make a good projection for how you can change your services so that you can continue to have work talking to people connecting with people networking honestly i start to take a look at when when covid hit I started to talk to other IO psychologists across the country. Um, I just started to reconnect with them, say, hey, how's it going? And we got into conversations about where the future is going to go, what the issues are having, or what the issues are that we're going to be able to solve. Um, and I started taking a look at situations that people that I know are going through. So in terms of where the organizational psychology field is going to move in, in, in the next couple of months, I think we're going to be needed for recruiting and hiring. And I looked at that from when I've seen all sorts of stories where companies have laid off their employees and because they either don't have money, but some of them have just taken this opportunity to get rid of an employee that they don't like. <laughs> so there's a reason why, Hey, Joe, and I mean, no offense to anyone named Joe out there. Um, <laughs> Joe does a really great job, but he gets in arguments with clients or he curses them out. Um, so we can't have that anymore. So they use COVID-19 as a reason to lay these people off. So now you have the people who have been legitimately laid off, been laid off for COVID-19 and the people who have been essentially terminated for performance. 
and everybody's got the same reason why they were laid off. So how do you tell the difference between these people? And that's where your organize your friendly neighborhood organizational psychology comes in and helps you um, helps you figure that difference out. I feel like this is especially pertinent now that we've kind of talked about the challenges of being a consultant in this current context. So what are the attitudes that consultants need to hold in order to, you know, survive in their field and be successful? Generally speaking, there's three rules that, uh, in, in any situation, job consulting, whatever that I tend to, to, in my work life, live by. The first one is put in an honest effort. Hey, look, not every day is going to be super busy. Sometimes you're going to be exhausted. Sometimes you're going to slack a little bit. Sometimes you'll work at a slower pace. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with taking a break. You're human. You're not a robot. Um, Just don't slack off all the time. So if you work for a firm, don't show up late, take a six-hour break, and leave early. (laughs) have a little bit of conscientiousness that's what we call it in psychology um if you're working on your own if you're if you're working for yourself if you're slacking all the time you're not going to get anything done and then you're not going to be able to pay the bills at the end of the month so yes it's fine but put in an honest effort and and if you want to get into independent consulting it's going to keep you honest because if you can't pay your rent at the end of the month or you can't pay your mortgage that's going to keep you really honest. Rule number two, be willing to learn. It helps so much if you're just open and it helps so much in terms of that identifying possibilities, identifying opportunities. Just listen, look, learn. You would be amazed at how much information, just gathering some information, a little bit of observation, a little bit of listening, how much you can get out of that, how many ideas, how many opportunities you can get that, get out of that. And, and, and on the flip side of that learning side of things, that's proactive learning. Failure happens. We know it. Your boss knows it. They might be unreasonable about it sometimes, <laughs> but failure happens. And the important thing is to learn from it. Um, it. It's not the end of the world. It's not the last thing. So one honest effort two, be willing to learn and three, be willing to work with others. Lone wolfing things is so much harder. You're just need, making your life needlessly difficult. Whether you're you're an independent consultant or you're you're working for a firm, in in any role, working on your own sucks. <laughs> and that's not the extrovert side of me saying that. Uh, in independent consulting, having a network, having a strong network is, is amazing. The opportunities you can get from it, the support you can get from it, the bigger opportunities because you can partner up with people, it's all a huge benefit. So don't try to lone wolf it. Work with others. Figure out when you need that support, where you need that support. Not everybody's great at everything. Figure out where you need the support and, and get that support for it. So just in summary, um, if I were to wrap those three rules up into to one saying, I would say drop your ego at the door. That's, that, that's, that's the basis of it. The other thing that I, I would say in terms of attitudes, um, politics are going to be, so I, I get asked about politics a lot. 
uh, workplace politics, um, politics with, 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 within networks, politics between, is there an ego contest between owners of businesses, yada, yada, yada. Doesn't matter where you go, what you do, politics are always going to be a thing. So it's either play the politics or don't. And I will give you the forewarning, not playing the politics is a tougher route, but it's more rewarding in the end. Thank you, Justin. Now we are going to move on to my conversation with Najib, beginning with how technology has impacted the value of knowledge and consulting. And that's where the landscape has really changed, um, right, is because of technology. So it used to be, you know, knowledge was king, right? It's, I have uh, specialty knowledge in marketing communication that nobody else has and you're going to pay me to access that, right? But that's no, no longer the case. We all have the same relative knowledge in our, in, at our fingertips with our smartphones and, and computers. So that's where now the value added comes in, right? And that's where, you know, even for, for a business like mine, which is, you know, a small boutique firm, you know, the competition's really changed, right? I'm competing with, you know, in solo individuals working from home, I'm working, I'm competing with university students. I'm competing with large multinational firms, right? We've all kind of now entered into this mishmash of competition where it used to, you know, 10 years ago, it was, you know, me and maybe a handful of my competitors were of similar size that competed for the same business. Sometimes I got it, sometimes they got it. But now, you know, more often than not, I'm, you know, losing business or gaining business from people I've never, never heard of, right? So because, now the client has a different ask before it was just to access our knowledge and expertise. Uh, and now, you know, more often than not, there's different price points for that, right? If I'm a client who says, I don't have a big budget, all I need is to find, you know, some information on this, this aspect of my business. Why not just hire a university student to do that research and analysis? What do I need to pay Najib for, right? So what does Najib bring to the table, you know, with his experience and background is the, is the analytical piece of it, the problem solving piece of it, based on my experience, my knowledge, my expertise, you know, I can add that value add is that, yes, you know, maybe you can find out this information on the, on the internet, but really I have the experience that actually makes sense of it and I can apply it to your business. Knowledge is the how, wisdom is the why. And I think more and more, People are looking for the why. They're looking for the wisdom that comes with years of experience so that they can circumvent the, the potential pitfalls or obstacles that might come if they try to do it themselves. That they're willing to pay for is, can the Jeep help me from making mistakes that might cost me money? Something that we talked about before is that kind of the problems that your clients are facing is changing. So it might not just be, we want to make this as efficiently as possible but now we need to create this product and bring it into people's lives in this very non-invasive, but very easy manner. And so with that kind of shift in the problems that businesses are facing, what skills have become very important in dealing with those problems and solving those problems for your clients? I think more and more often creative skills, critical analysis skills, um, problem solving, writing, right? Predictive skills are all uh, something that are going to be continue to be high in demand. Uh, David Epstein in his book, Range, talks about, you know, it's been a, quite a while now that you know, computers could beat human beings at chess, for example, right? So, you know, there's not gonna be too much uh, demand for chess champions anymore because more often than not, any uh, machine learning AI uh, piece of software is gonna be able to beat a, the grand chess champion of the world, right? 
the one thing that computers are a long way away from, machines are a long way away from, is understanding why we play chess, right? So they may understand how we play chess and be able to outflank us in playing chess, but they're a long way, I mean, until we reach singularity, I guess, is, uh, you know, they're a long ways away from figuring out why. So at the end of the day, this is why more and more business businesses aren't looking at you know, the degree that uh, students have when they bring them in. I see more and more, myself included, I could care less if it's a business student, right? Um, I look at poli-sci students, you know, anybody from social sciences, humanities, even arts, right? Because these people are creative thinkers. And what I want now is multidisciplinary workforce in my office, people from different backgrounds, education, experience, that can get together and help me solve a problem creatively and look at it critically. Now the issue is on the learning side is that we don't actually make that easy, right? In our universities, we don't make it easy to uh, put people into the workforce that have that multidisciplinary background. You know, to me, like more often than not, we should encourage students, no matter what faculty, there may be the concept of faculty, faculty should be eliminated altogether, right? Because what's going to happen with students who learn in traditional learning environments, you're not competing with uh, people who are learning online. So, Online, today I might take a course in you know, AI, tomorrow I might take a course in business, you know, next week I might take a course in uh, law, right? So I'm becoming multidisciplinary. And the interesting thing I think is what's happening is that you know, this whole conversation about who's more valuable, a generalist or a specialist, and my answer to that is both. What we want is people who are multidisciplinary in nature, they have a good broad understanding of many, many things and different um, uh, sciences, different uh, disciplines, different from the humanities, arts, business, but we want them to be able to apply to a specific problem, right? So we want specialists, but we want them to have multidisciplinary backgrounds. We don't, we no longer want the person who, you know, was just in political science for 10 years to work in our political firm, right? We want people who have a lot of different areas of applied learning uh, to bring that into our businesses. This is a tradition in our office that every Friday afternoon, we would all leave our desks, you know, just around one, two o'clock. And then in the afternoon, we would get together good food and all sit around and we would talk. And sometimes, you know, it was, you know, one person would pose a, a philosophical question to, to the group and we would all answer it. Uh, you know, like, could be something like, you know, what, what keeps you awake at night? You know what I mean? And the idea of that was, this is how you get to know each other better, right? I mean, you can sit next to somebody day after day, week after week, year after year, and not know anything about them. That is actually very possible in our current working environments, right? Never mind if people are working from home, right? You know mm -hmm. nothing about them. Yeah, you might know how many kids they have and their interests and things, but really knowing how they think and what they care about. So that was one of the things we would do is just pose philosophical questions to each other and, and, and talk and share that way. The other thing we would do is, we would pose to the group a internal problem or a client problem that we haven't been able to solve. So now the idea here was that a group of people from different experience, different backgrounds, different dis disciplines has a higher chance of solving a problem than people who are homogenous in terms of their backgrounds and experience. And it never failed. It, we never, I can't think of a single high T, you know, maybe it took two high T's, but I can't think of a <laughs> single one where we didn't solve that problem. Uh, for the client or for ourselves because that's the power of a group of people with uh, differing backgrounds when they approach and also fresh thinking as well right the power mm -hmm. of fresh thinking as well
So I wanted to ask you about the attitudes that you think are important for people to hold in consulting. And you mentioned a couple to me last time that I thought would be really good for people to hear because they helped me understand management consulting better. You know, one of the things that I really find with students these days is just there's such a rush for everything, right? And and that's the environment that we live in, right? I mean, we live in the immediate gratification environment, and also, you know, learning. Our approach to learning is that well as uh, is that way as well. In the in the book range uh, that I talked about earlier, he talks about the benefits of slow learning and how we've lost that value in society, right? Where, you know, people used to take, you know, years and decades, you know, to learn their dis- their disciplines, um, and now, you know, we read a few articles, you know, we do an online course and, you know, it goes up on LinkedIn, expert, right? Expert guru, thought leader, you know, cause I, uh, I've done a couple of courses in whatever subject, right? So we we're such a hurry to, to earn these badges, you know, the whole fake it till you make it um, kind of culture that we have, that we see in, in social media platforms, especially like LinkedIn. Um, that we don't really put an emphasis and value on slow learning and understanding is a thing that, you know, you should be learning your whole life. You know, there's, uh, there's a great uh, documentary on uh, the sushi maker in Japan that I, that I always uh, talk about. And, and I love it, right? Because the father, you know, the master sushi makers in his eighties, right. And he has, you know, a Michelin starred sushi restaurant and, you know, he talks about the fact that he feels like he's just learning like what sushi really is. He's making sushi his whole life. His son is still an apprentice. He's in his 50s. And he talks about how like one day he wants to be, you know, a master sushi maker. He's in his 50s. He's been <laughs> making sushi for like 40 years. You know, you know, we don't spend four days learning something before we think we're experts. Right? You know, sometimes learning things. And it's also how we push our children too. you know, now that I have a, a young daughter, I see, you know, the the temptation to accelerate her learning, right? Like, oh my goodness, she's gonna be left behind. Oh my goodness, like I'm not exposing her to enough things. And, you know, we don't value play. We don't, again, value that experiential learning, you know. And it's the same thing in our universities, right? We don't, we don't put any emphasis on just reflection. Like why isn't there just, why isn't there a course just called reflection? You know, that everybody has to take. Is where, you know, one time a week you stop and you think about everything you've learned you know, that week and you, and you try to apply it to different scenarios, right? You're given different scenarios to apply what you've learned that week and just reflect on what you've learned and what you've learned well and what you haven't, right? Again, you know, people would say that's, you know, hippie, hippie dippy thinking, but I don't really think it is, you know, as we focus on things like, you know, in part of a big part of compassion is self-reflection, a big part of compassion is self-compassion and self-care, right? As we, and meditation and, and all these kinds of things, right? As we realize the power of these things, I think we need to incorporate those in our formal education environments as well. So I just think that you know this this ability to slow down and understand mm-hmm. that no one expects you you know to be an expert when you enter their business fresh out of school. You know that this is your time to learn. This is your chance to ask all the stupid questions that you may not want to be able to ask later. More often than not, you know I get these young, passionate you know, a type personalities that immediately, you know, want to show me and the client everything they know. And, you know, and it's just a huge opportunity to, to just listen and active listening. This is the other thing too. Like we're such poor listeners, you know, more and more, I can probably count on one hand, how many people I know that I would say are good listeners. The idea of active listening, I think is so important and has to be revisited and retaught 
to society, right? We uh, to act, and again, you know, this uh, we have our cognitive bias, cognitive bias. We have our cognitive dissonance that um, our algorithms uh, allow us to feed into, right? So we have to actually struggle to really, really actively listen and critically think, right? Actively listening means like just I repeat back to you what I think I understand of what you're saying, right? So, so that you and I both feel like I understand. You know, in, in psychology, you brought up psychology, same thing, right? You're never going to get over a person's psychological or mental block if you don't at first under, try to uh, attempt to understand what their issue is, right? And you have to listen to that and make sure that you are hearing what they are saying. We never take the time. It's always assumption, right? I, I, yeah, yeah, I understand what that person is trying to say, and you know, and and they're wrong, and you know, and this is why they're wrong. And we're such a hurry to to counter that argument, right? And, you know, we live in an environment of contrarians, right? Not in, a, in an environment of people who seek to understand. You talked a little bit before about how the industry is changing and things are becoming a little bit more competitive, and now clients might be okay with maybe paying less for services from people who can't give more um, versus paying for somebody that's more expensive who could potentially give more value. So what is the type of attitude that might be important to have when you're entering into an industry like this that might be increasing in competitiveness, especially because of the shifts that are happening because of COVID? I think, you know, one of the things that people don't understand is that as a consultant, my whole life is fighting fires. That is the nature of the work. Somebody is paying me to solve their problem or their or alleviate their pain, right? So if you don't like firing, fighting fires, you don't want to become a consultant. Whether you're fighting those fires internally in your own office, in your own work, or doing it for clients, that is essentially the job. So if you're not comfortable with, you know, fast-moving uh, environments that require a lot of problem-solving, removing of obstacles, critical thinking, um, being creative, finding meaning in things, you know, you're not going to like being a consultant because that's the entire job. Now, after the pandemic and lockdowns ease up and things like that and people get back to it, I think that more and more, I think the opportunity to slow down will be there. I think people mm -hmm. will ask or give you more time to come up with better solutions to their problem. You know, whether you're designing a product or a service, I think we're starting to see, you know, the negative effects of those, you know, fast to rise tech unicorns, for example, like Uber and Airbnb. I mean, Airbnb has become very evident, you know, what are the negative effects of that platform that everybody thought was so glorious to begin with, you know, but in terms of what it's done to housing prices and the ability for low-income people to buy purchase houses, for examples, or even what it's done in terms of people who were um, over-leveraged in, in owning all of these properties that they then they rent it out to people and what that's done for them, right? Uber, another thing, right? Uber and the creation of the gig economy and the freelance driver and the uh, eroding of uh, worker rights, right? So I think that people are going to be more and more open to taking the time to think things through uh, before just getting caught up in the the shininess and the newness of the of the technology or whatever innovation mm -hmm. has been put out there. So I'll give you a, a good example. So human-centered design is a big part, you know, in my industry and in a lot of industries right now, and it has been, you know, for probably the last decade, maybe even longer, right? But we've been using it for about the last decade. So the idea of like when you're designing solutions and, and processes, you do it with human beings in mind. What's, you know, uh, how will the human being use it, you know, uh, versus like 
what's the cheapest or economical or the fastest way to do it, right? Which used to be the industrial way of looking at things. But now, you know, then human design, center design came along and said, okay, well, no, no, let's think about how humans are really going to use it and what's the best, most efficient way for humans to use it. But now, you know, what the new thing that is coming out is speculative design, right? Because Mm -hmm. now the problem with even human-centered design is that we are not the center of the universe. You know what I mean? Human beings aren't, you know. And even like, you know, people talking about humans and nature, we are nature. You know, we keep forgetting that. I mean, just because we're enlightened doesn't mean that we're not a part of nature. If anything, we should it be should be more evident now how, how integral human beings are with nature, right? And, and the effects, right? So the idea of speculative design is that now we design things and we build things with the idea of what that impact is. What is the societal impact? What is the moral impact? What is the values-driven result of what I'm doing? So, you know, if I knew now, if I was launching Airbnb, what might be the societal impact, maybe I would do it differently, right? If I was using speculative design versus human centered From a human-centered design perspective, if I'm looking at it, Airbnb is a great concept, right? Allowing people to make passive income, right? Leveling Mm -hmm. the playing field a little bit in terms of being able to to earn money, right? And same with Uber as well. But now I look at it from a speculative des- uh, design uh, aspect and think of what the societal uh, impact should be. Even, even the question of should I do this and what if I do this um, becomes a d- totally different approach. The idea of, you know, it used to be like cradle to grave thinking in terms of product making, right? My, my background in consumer packaged goods, so we always thought about cradle to grave, you know, like, we make this thing and then, you know, where does it end up, right? Mm-hmm. But now it's cradle to cradle, right? You know, so now we should be thinking about products of like, what is the new life of this product, right? So, you know, shoemakers you know, are, are really imp- embracing this. You know, consumer goods uh, companies are really embracing this. So if I make a shoe, what happens to that shoe after the, the first person uses it? What becomes its new life? Can it have a new life or does it just end up in in a, a landfill and I don't want it to end up in a landfill because I know the environmental aspects of it. So what can mm-hmm. happen to do? Can it be recycled? Can it be used for something else? Can it even be a shoe that self, you know, in this, this idea of um, uh, built in ob- obsolescence um, or making things, products obsolete. Maybe I designed the, the shoe to become obsolete as a shoe, but it can, it can be used for something else right? and be done by the user and not have to, you know, be brought back to a manufacturer or shredded or taken back down to its components and rebuilt and recycled. So this whole idea, I think of, of looking at things now with the desirable outcomes in mind and how can we change habits? How can we look at changing consumption and changing behavior uh, when we do put our products and services out in the world rather than just consuming for this consuming and producing for the sake of it. You know, we're not just trying to put more garbage in the world, right? Whether that, you know, garbage is a product or a service. We're trying to actually do things and work on things that provide meaningful outcomes in people's lives. Now, that's all not always achievable, but at least with that thinking at the outset, you know, we might have a different outcome. I hear a lot of discourse between people, some people who think that, you know, this is going to be a permanent change because now like corporations and companies are going to be waking up and they're going to want to maintain this. And then other people who are like, well, as soon as we start going back to work and life goes back to normal, things will just go back to how they once were. So are you saying that you are seeing that things might actually be shifting into a permanent change? 
or do you think that we might kind of go back to this normal to how we once were before? As somebody who's worked on change management their whole career, first of all, people are very reluctant to change. People fear change. They don't embrace change easily. It'd be a different world if, if that wasn't the case, right? So one of the things that you have to do for people is to step change. And I think it's the same thing with all of these, these ideas that people have in terms of what's going to happen post-pandemic, right? First of all, it hasn't been long enough to really cause true systemic change. It just hasn't. All it took was a couple months of you know, change in our lives and behaviors to change outcomes of how we behave in society and normal conditions. <laughs> it would, again, be a much different world. That's not how, how human beings work. That's not how the world works. So if we really want to have some of the changes that we think are needed now, uh, that we've seen, we've seen the negative effects of our societies and, and the poor social constructs that we have and the poor social supports that we have for the most vulnerable. We need systemic change in a way of thinking. That speculative design concept. You know, we're in a bubble, right? So people, you know, who think that, oh, I could have done my job. This is the big, the funniest thing I always hear, you know, is like, oh, I could have done my job from home. Really? Is your job right now the same as it was day to day? Is there the same demand of your times? Is there the same amount of people asking for your time? Are there the same amount of um, time management issues and, and project management issues as, as in normal? Of course there isn't, right? You know, most people have experienced a very um, uh, less demanding uh, work schedule than they had before. Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's silly to think that, you know, just because you're able to do it for the last few weeks that you'll all, you're always going to be able to do it. Now, you know, I think one of the big things that we should look at as, as employers is, you know, just like we customize many things in our businesses for individuals, we need to customize the hiring experience as well, right? I think that more time has to be spent when you hire people to understand how they like to learn and how they like to work, right? Rather than assuming that, you know, someone's background and their experience makes them great for the job, you know, I think we need to spend more time say, figuring out, you know, is this a audible learning person? Is this a, you know, a, a, a a face-to-face learning and interacting person, you know, and, and understanding, you know, things like introversion and extroversion mm-hmm. and all of these psychological traits and behaviors that are important. You know, I think that should determine whether or not a person is a work from home employee or a work at the office employee, right? And, and then set up your office accordingly, right? If you, you know, really feel like you need half your staff to be the type of person that really thrives working from home, then you only need half the office space because Jen, hire those people, hire those people that you know thrive at working from home and have the responsibility and discipline to work from home, you know, and then, you know, but you'll still need an office for the other people who actually thrive in, in team environments and be seeing people all the time and socializing, right? So rather this, you know, again, we're going, we, we've been through this cycle so many times in our work environments, right? It's like open space versus closed space, cubicles, You know, and the reason why this is all cyclical is because we never actually address the true problem. Again, speculative design, right? It's like, you know, what if? What if I hire this person and they don't like working in an office, but I don't, I'm not set up to let them work from home, right? What if, you know, we don't ask these questions. Uh, And I think those are the kinds of things that we need to start talking about is not, you know, you know, are we going to have like this utopian environment now that, you know, for a few weeks we were all inconvenienced? It's a silly, silly uh, way of thinking at it. If decades and decades of obvious inequality and, and inequity and intolerance, we've seen it, hasn't changed us. Do you really think a few weeks of it is going to? 
Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of GMCA Podcast. Make sure to catch the next episode where Jason will be discussing recruitment and the process of beginning a career as a consultant.